Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight. At the early morning hour of 1 a.m. on Sunday, October 28, 2007, at the northern end of the university town of Grand Forks, North Dakota, a taxi cab operated by the Red, White, and Blue Taxi Service purred slowly along Washington Street in search of its next fare. Outdoors, it was cold, 25 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 5 Celsius, and although it was technically early Sunday morning, for many of the city's partying and pub-crawling patrons, this moment in time belonged to the tail end of a cheap Saturday night, a night spent out on the town. Most of these late-night partiers would soon return home where they would free-fall into their beds. But first, they had to get home. Uh, I'm up here at 36 now, about to go under the ordinance bridge. Behind the wheel of that taxi cab sat 40-year-old Paul Ballstead. Ballstead cruised northwest on Washington, scanning the street for any frozen late-nighters in need of a lift. On his left, the El Rocco bar popped up, but not much was sizzling there. Nobody hailing for his cab. 43, you're going to the smoke shack. As he approached the intersection with Gateway Drive, Paul noticed some activity just 200 yards ahead to the north. There was no mistaking the cluster of flashing red lights and cop cars. Some kind of accident or incident had taken place over there by the bar called the drum. The broken drum. It was best to avoid all that, so Paul decided to hang a left. Turn uh, west off of uh, Washington onto Gateway. I wasn't going anywhere in particular. Unit 6 at the PX Gotcha, 37. Paul cruised along Gateway, keeping his eyes peeled for a fare. Memorial Park Cemetery soon emerged on his left. It's a big cemetery. Thousands buried in there. Suddenly, as Paul approached the corner of the cemetery, at the intersection of Gateway and North Columbia Road, he caught sight of movement off to his left. A young man dressed in something yellow was waving his arms, flagging him down. He was on the southeast corner of that intersection. Suddenly, Paul had his next cab fare. (laughs) 
so I turned left and stopped the corner there. He ran across the street, climbed in. The young man in yellow climbed in the front passenger seat, and then, as any taxi driver would, Paul asked the man, Where can I take you, fella? But Paul's new cab fare didn't respond. Paul then realized that the man was wearing a yellow Halloween costume of some sort, or what was left of a Halloween costume. He thought it might be a cat or something. It had paws. The left paw was missing, and the right paw, Paul noticed, had blood on it. Paul tried speaking to him again. Looks like you've had a rough night, huh? When Paul didn't get a response to that question, he asked the man a second time, Where do you want to go? Still no answer. Paul felt that the young man in yellow didn't seem able to speak. He didn't seem to be really hearing him. Instead, the passenger just kind of stared out into space. He looked like he was kind of in shock, but in a daze. Paul Ballstead looked closer and realized the young man had a fat lip and bruised knuckles. Under one eye was a prominent open sore swelling up. Paul thought that thing might need stitches. And then there was the blood, a lot of blood, on the man's face. I mean, you couldn't have used a paintbrush or a roller to get more blood on there. Paul asked the man a third time, Where can I take you? And after a second or two, he blurted out the address. 2027 2nd Avenue North the young man said. As they got it, we're on the way. And he wasn't that far from home. I mean, I had to go down to university, hang a left, hang a right on 23rd, went two blocks on a left, and I was there in just mere minutes. Paul parked the cab in front of the small home at 2027 2nd Avenue North. Before his passenger paid for the ride, Paul asked the man if he wanted medical attention to get his cut taken care of. Paul figured it would need four or five stitches. But then, the young man in yellow turned to Paul and looked at him with a very puzzled look on his face. It was as if the young man was completely confused, as if to say, What cut on my face? What are you even talking about? The sun visor over the passenger seat had a mirror on it. He pulled down the visor, took a look at himself, and pretty well agreed. He looked like he'd been dunking for apples in a blood bank. He was covered on it. But the bloodied young man declined to get medical attention, and instead, he just pulled out his wallet. He put it on credit card, and he hopped out, and that was it. Compared to the bloodied man in a partial costume, the rest of Paul Ballstead's work shift was uneventful that early Sunday morning. Eventually, Mr. Ballstead finished his shift and made his way home, where finally, he too fell into bed. Over the next 48 hours, Paul and the rest of Grand Forks would learn the news. A Grand Forks man was confirmed dead Sunday at Elchu Hospital, and police are proceeding with the investigation as a homicide. No arrests have been reported. 
Grand Forks police responded to the call just before midnight Saturday at the Broken Drum Bar to find a 38-year-old man lying on the ground after a reported fight. He suffered serious head injuries and was unresponsive. The man's identity was not released Sunday until family could be notified. Anyone with information should contact the Grand Forks Police Department. Welcome to Season 8, Unresolved, The Murder of Joel Loveling. There was an energy around it unlike any case I had ever covered, unlike any case I've covered since. Late in the evening hours of October 27th, and it was a, a confusing scene. And there was a certain bizarreness to the case created by the Halloween atmosphere that night. And my, my first thoughts, it was just so unfair because everything was going so right in Joel's life at that time. Both sides had their theories about what happened. So when they got to the broken drum, everybody got off the bus. bus was parked over on the east side of the parking lot here, closer to the road. Like where that blue pickup is now? kind of followed me, then I right turned, and I was kind of looking over my shoulder to see where he was. Uh, he had the victim's blood on his clothes, on his face. The body of the sweatshirt, the arm of the sweatshirt, the costume piece that was in the garbage, his pants. Got into a fight and somebody died as a result of it. Most of the people, I think, went out one door and got on the bus. Uh, there were some lights here on the side of the building, as you can see, but, you know, there's only so much illumination. And I even felt it could have, it should have been me, not him. Maybe that's the big sister talking, I don't know. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. The man killed that night was 38-year-old Joel Loveling. Joel was a father and a son and a Grand Forks resident. He was also a brother and a friend of many. On the night he was killed, Joel had been out on the town with friends. Everything was right in his world, and Halloween was just around the corner, and like a lot of people in Grand Forks that night, Joel had dressed in a Halloween costume. He was simply dressed as a North Dakota University hockey fan. He wore a green hockey jersey and a green hat. One minute, Joel was inside a bar named The Broken Drum. He was having a good time with his new fiancé and other friends, and then suddenly everything changed. He stepped outside to take a phone call and also to help someone, he said, but he never returned. Joel was found on his back in the parking lot. His face was unrecognizable, covered in blood, and Joel wasn't breathing. The police arrived, and first responders did their best to revive him, but Joel did not survive. The first thing you need to know about this story is that nobody has ever been found guilty for this crime. 
police would later arrest that bloodied man in a yellow costume that Paul Ballstead picked up with his taxi. His name was Travis Stay, a 23-year-old man from Grand Forks. He was charged with Joel's murder, but then found not guilty in a court of law. If you travel to Grand Forks, North Dakota, as I recently did, you'll easily run into people familiar with this story. And if you ask these random people, hey, do you know what the current status of Joel's case is? You'll be met with an array of answers. They all agree on one thing, though. Joel's life was taken from him by another person or persons. Nobody will tell you that Joel was hit by a meteorite or run over by a car or that he tripped and fell hitting his head. Joel was beaten to death. Aside from that, though, people who talk about this case fall loosely into three categories. Category number one will tell you that this is simply a cold case. It's unsolved. We have no idea what happened or who might be responsible, and we will never know what happened unless someone comes forward with new information. Because, simply put, there were no witnesses to the assault on Joel, no video cameras in the parking lot where Joel was attacked. This category of people say the identities of Joel's killer are unknown to us. It's a cold case. Category number two are people who say that this case is solved, but simply unresolved. They will say things like, we know exactly what happened to Joel Loveling. They say that Travis Stay, the man found not guilty in court, is responsible for Joel's death. It simply wasn't proven beyond a reasonable doubt in court. And so, he goes free. This case is solved, they say. Solved yet unresolved, and it can never be resolved because you can't try a person twice for the same crime, at least not after a not guilty verdict. Finally, category number three, they will tell you that Travis Stay is innocent and Joel Loveling was killed by others who were at the Broken Drum Bar that night, specifically a group of young men on a party bus. In one version of this scenario, these men attacked and beat up both Joel Loveling and Travis Stay. In this version, Joel succumbed to his injuries while Travis Stay survived. Now you might be thinking, wait, what James? This guy Travis Stay, the guy who was put on trial and found not guilty, does he say that he and Joel Loveling were attacked and beaten up by others? Well, here's an important thing to understand about this story. Travis Stay says that he does not remember anything about this time of his Saturday night. He says he was blackout drunk at the time. More specifically, he claims to have been blacked out for about an hour or more after getting punched by someone. We will talk more about Travis Stay's memory loss, but for now, just know that Travis Stay himself claims to have blacked out and he has no memory of meeting Joel Loveling or witnessing his death. I want to tell you about the night Joel died, and I will in just a moment, but first I want to say to you longtime listeners out there, in some ways, this season is going to be a little different than previous ones, mostly because of how this story itself is a little different. In seasons one through seven, I've reported on stories that have gone largely unreported previously, at least unreported by any recent true crime podcasts or television programs. 
That is not the case here. The story of Joel Loveling's death has been covered previously, and not all that long ago. NBC Dateline covered this story in 2013, and then repackaged it and released it again in 2019. And even more recently, Joel's case has been the subject of some true crime podcasts and YouTube channels. So you might be wondering or thinking to yourself, why, James, are you going to tell a story that's already been told? Well, there are a few reasons. For one, many of you have asked me to look into this case. I've received multiple emails suggesting I dig deep into the death of Joel Loveling because there's so much confusion and speculation and theories about the case, at least here locally in North Dakota. After Dateline flew into North Dakota to report on this complicated crime, and after people watched the broadcast, many felt that they were left with more questions and answers and others told me they felt the Dateline story felt rushed and incomplete. I've watched it, of course, and I agree, it does feel incomplete in some ways. And those other podcasts and YouTube channels? With the possible exception of one of them, they seem to have been almost entirely based off of that same Dateline production, along with some news articles by the Grand Forks Herald. What's more, while Dateline did interview key individuals in this case, including Joel's parents, His family told me that those subsequent podcasts and YouTube channels never contacted them at all. And that is very common these days. A lot of true crime content you will find on podcasts, YouTube, and now on TikTok are just rehashing previously reported things. They are reporting on reporting, not doing their own research or investigation. Obviously, I did contact Joel's family, and you'll hear from some of them in this series. So, while at first glance it did appear to me that Joel's story had been covered thoroughly, when I took a closer look, it seemed to be fairly thin. What we have is Dateline's dramatic and entertainment-style take on the story, and then mostly just regurgitation of the same. In other words, what most people know about this case really comes from Dateline's story. And while Dateline does give a good high-level picture, it's only a partial picture. There were also things they got wrong, or at least were portrayed in an incomplete manner. Or maybe you could say, in the name of entertainment, it lacked context. I believe that all this has led to some misunderstandings about Joel's case, as well as many rumors, theories, and hearsay. And of course, I do hope that you find Dakota Spotlight to be entertaining, because, let's face it, if you don't feel entertained on some level, you probably won't listen. But there's something else I hope you attribute to this podcast, and that is something called the pursuit of the truth. In this somewhat crazy world we live in today, I sometimes feel like reality itself or truth has become so challenged and skewed that some days we don't know up from down. In fact, this very feeling of a gaslit existence is what got me started with this podcast in the first place. I don't want to live in a world where facts no longer matter. So my intention with this story about the death of Joel Loveling is simple, I guess. By the end of this series, you will have the most complete picture possible. I will present the facts to the best of my ability and fill in some of the important blanks and connect some important dots left unconnected by Dateline NBC and others. To do so, I'll use the following sources. Interviews with law enforcement, family members, witnesses, and others the complete set of police files and subpoenas and other legal documents, 
and any new information that may come my way that I find credible. Now, I may pipe in along the way with some of my own observations or perceptions of this story, but in the end, I'll be leaving it up to you to come up with your own conclusions on what happened to Joel Loveling. And to start it all off, I'm going to give you the rundown of the evening that Joel Loveling died. In later episodes, we will put parts of this evening under a high-powered microscope. But for now, I just want to tell you what happened. After all, despite all the previous coverage, a lot of you around the country and around the world have never heard of this story. Let's take 60 seconds to give you a helicopter view of Grand Forks in 2007. If you do a flyover and take a peek below, what you have is a college town or small city with a population of about 50,000 people. It lies just 80 miles from the Canadian border in northeastern North Dakota. And see that squiggly narrow river down there snaking its way up north? That's the Red River, most famous perhaps for its ability to flood the region. But it's more than just a river. It's also the official state line between North Dakota and Minnesota. And see that community on the Minnesota side? That's East Grand Forks, Minnesota, home to another 8,000 people. At least, that was the population in 2007 when this story takes place. Halloween that year was to fall on a Wednesday, which is hardly the go-to party night of the week. And so, the Saturday before Halloween, that is October 27th, the night Joel died, that was a natural choice for Halloween-themed parties. Now, central to this story is a bus, a yellow party bus. So central, we might even consider it to be a character all by itself. Now, the concept of a party bus like this was something new for me when I moved to North Dakota. It might be a new concept for you, too. This is my understanding of how it works. In a nutshell, someone charters a private bus in this case, a school bus, to drive a whole bunch of friends all around town from one bar to the next. And if everyone ships in with a few dollars for the cost of the bus, it's a cheap and hopefully safe mode of transportation. It keeps people from drinking and driving. These party buses will pull into the parking lot of a bar, and then, like a load of tipsy tourists... A herd of drinkers descend on the pub where they order drinks, use the bathroom, and hopefully just have a good time. When it's time to leave, they all board the bus again and head off to the next bar. On this night, there were at least four such party buses purring around Grand Forks and East Grand Forks, Minnesota. And of course, Halloween made things extra festive that night, as most everyone on these buses were in costume. The first thing I want you to note about these party buses in this story is that the victim, Joel Loveling, was not a passenger on any of these four buses that night. Joel had been spending his time with his fiancée, Heather. They'd been at a bar called The Bun, and then at around 10.30pm, they drove to the Broken Drum Bar to meet up with some friends. Two of the four party buses that night stopped at the Broken Drum Bar. One bus was green, and it left long before Joel was killed. That is not under dispute. Our party bus, the yellow school bus, arrived after 11 p.m. 
exactly when it left the broken drum became an incredibly important aspect of this investigation, as you will later see. This bus had an estimated 40 to 50 passengers on it. One passenger on this bus was Travis Stay, the man who would later be arrested and accused of killing Joel. But as you will see, Travis did not leave on that bus. Travis Stay was the man that hailed Paul Balstead's taxi cab a half a mile away from the broken drum. So I turned left and stopped the corner there. He ran across the street, climbed in. In 2007, Travis Stay was a 23-year-old nursing student at the University of North Dakota. He's not a tall man, and as you will see, this fact came into sharp focus during his trial when his defense team argued that Travis was too small, too slight to be able to kill Joel Loveling, who was a much bigger man. Travis has blonde hair and features that many might describe as clean-cut. It's a cliché, certainly, but some might describe Travis Day's appearance as the boy next door, or in his case, the boy next door studying to become a nurse. On that night, Travis was dressed in a yellow lion's costume. It was actually a children's costume he had modified, and it wasn't terribly clear to others that it was a lion's costume. Later, when interviewed by police, witnesses will refer to Travis Stay's costume as various things, including a sunflower costume, a golden gopher fan, which is a reference to the mascot of the University of Minnesota, and due to the fact that Stay's costume had paws, which looked like bird's feet, It seemed that many thought it might have been some kind of bird costume. What witnesses will remember for sure, though, is the color, and the color was yellow. Travis also wore a yellow hooded sweatshirt. This sweatshirt will eventually become one of the most important pieces of evidence in his trial, important both for the prosecution and the defense. Travis Day may have been a passenger on that party bus that night, but he actually didn't know more than three or four people. The bus had been chartered by a couple of private individuals. You could call them the organizers of the bus. These organizers told their friends, and then those friends told their friends, and friends' roommates, and so on. So finally, word kind of just got around. Kind of like any college party, except instead of being at a fraternity or a sorority or some apartment building, this party was on wheels. And, in addition to word-of-mouth invites, as this bus made its way around town, some new people jumped aboard while others abandoned the bus. Again, it was kind of like a college party. People came and went, plans changed, it ebbed and flowed. As you might imagine, with the kind of fragmented memories that alcohol tends to bring to an equation like this, it would be difficult to retroactively document exactly who was and who wasn't on this bus at all various times of the night. And yet, before it was all said and done, Grand Forks police detectives would find themselves assigned with exactly this challenging task. We do know this, though. The plan for this yellow bus was to meet at 8 p.m. at a bar named Cuckoo's Nest in East Grand Forks, Minnesota. That was the plan, but it seems the bus was late to arrive to Cuckoo's Nest. It didn't leave until sometime around 9 The complete route for this bus that night is as follows. From Cuckoo's Nest in East Grand Forks, they traveled to Borrowed Bucks in Grand Forks. From there, they drove to a bar called El Rocco, or The Rock. After that, the bus went to the Broken Drum Bar. From the drum, they traveled to the final destination, 
a bar called Stormy Sledsters in downtown Grand Forks. There, everyone departed the bus where they could go to several bars within walking distance. But now, let's rewind the evening and go back to the Broken Drum Bar. First thing to know about this bar is it's not a big place, just a small one-story building facing the northeast on the south side of North Washington Street in Grand Forks. Inside the drum there is a bar, of course. Bar stools line the bar and high tables sit across one wall. In the back are the bathrooms and both regular tables and more high tables. In addition to the front door, there's a back and side door leading directly into the parking lot on the west side. To simply call it unfortunate that there were no security cameras outside of the bar is a huge understatement. That alone could have solved this crime. But there were security cameras inside, three to be exact. I requested and obtained copies of the security video from that night. I also obtained police files including witness statements. By closely examining and cross-referencing these things, we can do a good job of reconstructing the evening of October 27, 2007 at the Broken Drum Bar. Of these three cameras, two are of primary value to us. The third is mostly a close-up of the cashier near the front door. I'll call that camera camera number three. What we will call camera number one shows the bar area near the front door. Camera two shows the opposite direction, the bar area near the back. Unfortunately, the quality of these videos is not fantastic. They're very grainy and occasionally there are gaps of up to about 10 seconds. And there's no audio. On camera one facing the front, it's clear that Joel Lovelane and his fiancée Heather walk in the door at 10.36 p.m. Heather is wearing a Pennzoil mechanics costume, yellow coveralls, boots, a cap, and an oil rag in her back pocket. Joel bears his green hockey jersey and a green hat. On both camera one and then camera two, we see Heather walk to the restroom. Back on camera one, Joel orders a drink at the bar... Two minutes later, 10.38 p.m., Heather returns from the restroom. They set their drinks down by the blackjack table, and now it's Joel's turn to head to the bathroom. Another two minutes later, it's 10.40 p.m. Joel returns, and he and Heather settle in. Joel at the blackjack table, and Heather sitting just off to his side. They don't know it, of course, at the time, but in just over an hour... Joel will be deceased. For the next 30 minutes, Joel and Heather sit and seem to be enjoying the evening. Then at 11.16 p.m., Heather spots some friends and heads over to talk to them. On camera number two, facing the back, you can see her pull up a chair at their table. At 11.17 p.m., Joel is done playing blackjack. He too appears on camera two when he approaches Heather, gives her a kiss, and then heads towards the bathrooms. 
When he returns, Joel and Heather move to a round table near the back door and side door where they talk and visit with what looks to be four or five friends. As I said, the video quality is very poor, but there's no mistaking Joel in his green jersey and hat and Heather in her yellow coveralls. By all witness statements made later, and from the looks of the security video, Joel and his fiancée and friends are all having a good time and are in good spirits. There's no confrontations or problems at this time. The exact timeline of the yellow bus will become a focus of the Travis Day trial. It becomes very important for the defense to show when the bus left the broken drum. But it's much easier to conclude when the bus arrived at the broken drum. In witness statements made later, two of the bus passengers said that as soon as the bus stopped at the broken drum parking lot, they very quickly got off the bus and rushed into the bar immediately. Why? because they wanted to get ahead of their fellow bus passengers so they could order a drink quickly without waiting in a long line. And camera number one shows clearly that the influx of costumed partygoers begins at 11.20 p.m. And so it feels safe to say that the yellow party bus arrived at between 11.18 and 11.20, which is just as Joel and Heather were sitting down at the round table near the back door. Here they come in their full kaleidoscope color, like a herd of painted cattle flowing in through the front door. A short list of the costumes that night would be a barmaiden, a Paris Hilton, a sheriff's deputy, a construction worker, cowboy, sleeping bag, joker, clown, a bum, a hunter, a penguin, a gangster, and that is the short list. For the next ten minutes on both camera one and camera two, Clusters of costume patrons order drinks, go to the restrooms, return from the restrooms, and take photos of one another. At 11.30 p.m., approximately 15 minutes before Joel will be attacked, Travis Stay appears in the video on camera two. He's walking into the rear of the bar alone. He's pretty close to where Joel and Heather and the others are sitting, but there's no interaction. Travis doesn't seem to interact with anyone. You can see the paw of his lion's costume on his left hand, but his right hand is not visible. Travis simply scans the room for a second and then turns around and heads towards the front of the bar, where on camera one, he can be seen headed towards the front door. Unfortunately, it's not possible to see exactly when Travis, or anyone, leaves through that front door at this hour because the bar is too packed and the video too blurry. Three minutes later, according to the timestamp on camera two, it's 11.33 and 16 seconds. A girl named Anna, dressed as Paris Hilton, appears. She also heads towards the front door. Our Paris Hilton is about to be involved in something important to us, and also central to this case, which we'll learn about later. Then, 20 seconds later, around the time Paris Hilton would be reaching the front door, Joel Loveling receives a phone call. This phone call is from Joel's friend, Terry Overball. Joel had texted Terry earlier, asking if they wanted to meet up with them at the bar. This phone call can be seen in a list of Joel's phone activity documented by the Grand Forks PD. 
And in the surveillance video on camera two, Joel can be seen standing up from the table and leaving through the back door at 11.33 and 55 seconds. This is consistent with witness accounts made by Heather and others who stated that Joel got a phone call and stepped outside for a few minutes where he could hear better. Joel did return and rejoin them briefly at the table, but it's what he may have witnessed outdoors that's important. According to camera two, Joel returned to Heather and the others at the table at 11.40 and 30 seconds. So he was gone for six and a half minutes. Of those six and a half minutes, Joel spent four minutes and 11 seconds on the phone with his friend Terry, according to their phone logs. When interviewed by police later, Terry Overbo said that nothing seemed out of the ordinary on this phone call. Joel didn't mention any problems with this evening or anything out of the ordinary taking place in the parking lot. All we know is that after Joel ended his phone call with Terry in the parking lot, it would take him another 2 minutes and 15 seconds to return to his fiancée and friends. What Joel likely witnessed, or partially witnessed, was something Paris Hilton, a.k.a. Anna, and several others would recall for investigators later. In fact, they would testify about it in court during the Travis Stay trial. You'll learn all about that later in this season, but for now, let's go back to the table where Joel has just returned after talking to Terry. It's 11.40 p.m. On camera two, you can see Joel standing next to the table. Then he sits down just for a second or two, and then he stands up again and walks out the back door again. The following is taken from statements made to investigators by a woman named Rebecca, who had been sitting with Heather at the table, narrated by a colleague of mine. And he came by the table, and he stood there. And I kind of remember him saying something about, he goes... There's a kid outside. They won't let him back on the bus. Joel looked kind of troubled. Just, you know, like he wanted to help him or something. He stood there, and then he went back out the door. Joel's fiancée, Heather, would reiterate the same story. And when Joel didn't come back, she made a couple attempts to find him. At 11.45, she calls him. No answer. At 11.48, on camera two, she stands up and opens the side door to the parking lot and looks for Joel. She's back within a minute. So she walks to the front of the bar and speaks with the bouncer. Have you seen Joel? She steps outside with the bouncer for a few seconds, and then when she returns, she's holding her phone, calling Joel again. The time is 11.51. Fifty-one-year-old Keith Swartz has been sitting at the bar of the Broken Drum since about 5 or 6 p.m. that night. He was propped in his favorite stool near the front. His brother, Tim, was with him, too. Keith told investigators later that he was kind of a regular at the Broken Drum. That night, he and his brother spent the evening enjoying a few drinks and watching some sports on the bar's television. And of course, taking in all the Halloween costumes, the ones that stood out were the really good ones, Dorothy of Wizard of Oz, the Joker, and the Penguin. 
At around 11.50, Keith decided to head home. Once out the front door, Keith walked west towards his vehicle, and he was surprised to discover that there was nobody about. It was surprisingly quiet in the parking lot for what had been a very busy night. The parking lot at the Broken Drum was poorly illuminated. It was very dark out there. Suddenly, Keith caught sight of what looked like a human shape laying on the ground. He thought it was a doll or mannequin because, well, it was Halloween and maybe some college kids were pranking him. He even yelled out something like, Okay, guys, very funny. Come out, come out wherever you are. Something like that. But boy, this mannequin looked realistic. Too realistic. A green hockey jersey? Then suddenly a light appeared, glowing from the mannequin or whatever it was. It was Joel Loveling's telephone lighting up because inside the bar, Heather was attempting to call him. It was then that Keith noticed the blood, or what looked like blood, Joel's face was covered in it. Suddenly, two men approached Keith and said, What's this? Is this for real? Keith would later tell investigators that those two men, quote, came out of nowhere, unquote. Keith reached down and touched Joel's arm, hoping to feel the hard plastic of some kind of Halloween prank. One of those two men said, I'll go get help, and he ran to the bar. On camera two, you can see the exact moment when Heather and the others at the table are informed that Joel has been found in the parking lot. Heather jumps up from the table and heads out the door with her friends in close pursuit. Still to come in future episodes of Unresolved, The Murder of Joel Loveling. There was an energy around it, unlike any case I had ever covered, unlike any case I've covered since. Late in the evening hours of October 27th, and it was a a confusing scene. And there was a certain bizarreness to the case created by the Halloween atmosphere that night. And my my first thoughts, it was just so unfair, because everything was going so right in Joel's life at that time. Both sides had their theories about what happened. So when they got to the broken drum, everybody got off the bus. The bus was parked over on the east side of the parking lot here, closer to the road. Like where that blue pickup is now? Kind of followed me, then I right turned, and as I was kind of looking over my shoulder to see where he was. Uh, He had the victim's blood on his clothes, on his face body of the sweatshirt, the arm of the sweatshirt, the costume piece that was in the garbage, his pants. Got into a fight and somebody died as a result of it. Most of the people, I think, went out one door and got on the bus. Uh, There were some lights here on the side of the building, as you can see, but, you know, there's only so much illumination. And I even felt it could have, it should have been me, not him. Maybe that's the big sister talking, I don't know. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, research written and produced by me, James Walner. I also do the sound editing. 
Our podcast network manager is Chris Kurzman. Madison Hunter, our social media specialist, and Jeremy Fugelberg, our editorial advisor. Don't miss the awesome Dakota Spotlight Facebook group. To join, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Dakota Spotlight. Finally, some music this season was generously granted again by Wowza in Kalamazoo and Hand Turner. Check them out at wowzaincalamazoo.bandcamp.com and handturner.bandcamp.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.